0: All. A couple quick announcements this morning. Uh, on the way in, you got the current. There's a couple things I want to draw your attention to. First, on the front page is an announcement about our church picnic. Uh, we would love to see you out there. It's a lot of fun. It's on August 26th, it's a couple Saturdays from now at Cork Creek Park. Uh, You can register on the website or between services. Go to the information desk. They'd be happy to help you there. Of course, I guess at now at this point, I can't say between services. You missed that. So now after the service, maybe you can go and register at the information desk. For that, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, We eat hot dogs. And uh, if you're conscious about your health, don't eat hot dogs. We'll eat something else. Uh, And um, play games and and hang out. Great time of fellowship. So please uh, sign up for that. Sign up so we know how much food to have, otherwise you're gonna come and be hungry. And then on the back of the current, uh, at the bottom, uh, there's a little blurb for group leader orientation. That's next Saturday, August 19th. If you lead a small group, if you're interested in leading a small group at any point in the future, if you're not sure if you wanna lead a small group but you just kinda wanna explore it, please sign up for that. Come out to that Saturday morning, this coming Saturday morning. Uh, You can sign up for that on the website Uh, We'll provide a a light breakfast and uh, just work through kind of our vision for small groups, our vision for group leadership, and uh, help you get a better idea of that. So please register for that as well so I know how many binders to make for you. All right. I'm going to have those who are handing out Bibles come forward and start handing out Bibles. If you uh, don't have a Bible, please uh, grab one, put your hand up, and uh, take that from the ushers. You're welcome to keep that if you don't have a Bible. So we preach from the Bible every week here. We think it's God's Word. We think it has authority in our lives. And so we preach it. We want to know it. One of the things that we learn in the Bible is that humans are totally depraved. Humans are sinful. We don't come into this world naturally uh, at peace with God. We come out as rebels against God. And one of the ways that rebellion demonstrates itself so often is, is in the book of Titus, Paul says that that one of the evidences of this sin is that we go on hating one another and that we pass our days in malice and envy. And a particular expression of that is racism. And we have, in the last few days, seen a remarkably distressing and troubling expression of that racism and the white supremacy that was going on in Charlottesville over the past few days. Racism of all kinds, and white supremacy in, in particular, is an evil Wicked and damnable sin. And if it is done or defended in the name of Christ, it is blasphemous. And the church ought not be reserved about publicly condemning such things. This morning we need to pray. We need to pray for Charlottesville. We need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for those involved because ultimately the answer for all of this is Jesus. The church must stand and and speak with a prophetic voice against all injustice, this one included. And so this is not a political statement I typically don't like talking about politics. If I thought politics could change the world, I'd be a politician. I think only the gospel can change the world. But this white supremacy is entirely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. But we felt that it was necessary to help you think through a little bit what that looks like. Because we don't have more time to do it, Dean, could you advance to the next slide? I wanna point you to this resource. Uh, it's a podcast that was done yesterday in the wake of this stuff happening in Charlottesville. I think it would be a good resource if you're interested in thinking more about this from a biblical and gospel-centered perspective. Uh, it's a podcast by Colin Hansen. Uh, it's at thegospelcoalition.org. You can see the the address. I'm going to make sure it gets on the website underneath the sermon so you can have uh, access to it so you don't have to try to write down the whole thing. But if you just go to tgc.org and type in white supremacy, this will come up. Uh, I would recommend that you listen to that uh, just as a a means of helping to educate yourself and, and, and how to think through this issue biblically. So let's pray together. And then we will... Start into our text for this morning. Lord Jesus, we are all sinners. The Bible is so exceedingly clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that is, that is all of us. And Lord, as you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful life, we thank you that you're cleansing us, that you are making us new, that you're renewing us into the image, of the Creator, and we thank you that you're sanctifying us, that you have justified us and caused us to be born again. And we thank you that you have gathered us into a body as the church, and the church has specific roles in this world, and one of them, Lord, we know, is to stand against injustice and all that is inconsistent with the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus. And so help us to speak prophetically, help us to think biblically, Help us to stand and to call sin, sin when we see it. We pray for our nation, for our president, for uh, all those in authority who are now having to, to think through how to respond to this, that they would respond uh, with wisdom, that they would do so in ways that that seeks to protect people. We pray that you would stem the, the tide of racial injustice in our country. And Lord, we look forward to that day when Jesus comes and we are gathered around his throne, those of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father, as we come to our text now, we believe that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Pierce our hearts now, show us by your spirit what we need to learn this morning teach us we pray in Jesus name amen so we're in this series on 1 Timothy that we've called a blueprint for a healthy church we call it that because of the text that we're actually starting with this morning 1 Timothy 3:14 and 15. So if you have your Bible, please flip it open. We're in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to go from the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. And Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, okay, Timothy, this is why I'm writing you the letter. I left you in Ephesus with, with a role to fulfill and I'm hoping to come to you. I want to make it back to you, but, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus with a a job to organize the church, to to refute false teaching, and to put things in order. And and Paul says, I'm writing so that you will know how, how you ought to conduct yourself in the church. This is how the church is designed to function, to operate. And so he's giving him instructions about Uh, The the roles of men and women we talked about a couple weeks ago, and evangelism and leadership we talked about last week. And this is kind of the center of the letter, uh, as Paul tells Timothy, this is why I wrote to you, and he says that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, and then he has this this phrase, and we're going to focus in on this phrase this morning, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, This is a unique role that the church has in the world. And it is about the church's orientation to this thing called the truth. Now, in our culture, there's been a move to redefine what truth means. It's it's easy for our culture to say, well, there's all sorts of different truths. There's your truth and my truth, and And if uh, my truth says your truth is a lie, then then that's what it's... But but it's true for me, and what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. And so it's all very subjective and relative. And there's a, a denial that there is any objective truth. Truth that is true across the board for everybody, no matter what they say or think. See, our culture has redefined truth basically as personal opinion... But but the Bible says, and our text says, no, there is something that's called the truth. Truth with a capital T, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. The truth by which everything else is judged. And our text says, and Paul says, that it is the church who has this role of pillar and and support of the truth. Now he uses a a building metaphor here, the pillar, Uh, obviously just think of a a pillar. Uh, It's something that holds up the roof, it displays whatever's on top of it for people to see. The word support is actually a pretty rare word in the Greek New Testament. This is the only place it occurs, so it's hard to get more rare than that. Uh, And it means, and and this is one of the reasons why it's difficult to translate, but based on context, a lot of scholars think it it probably would be better translated as something like a bulwark or battlement. It's a reference to some kind of defensive fortification. And so I think with with that image in mind, the point that Paul is driving at is this. Dean, if you could advance to the next slide. That God's design is for the truth to be promoted and protected by local churches promoted as a pillar holds up whatever's on top of the church is to promote the truth and protected like a bulwark protects what's inside of it. the church is to protect the truth and so as we work through the next uh, several verses we'll see that as a local church we are to promote the truth through Christ-magnifying proclamation, and that we are to protect the truth against Christ-minimizing opposition. We're to promote the truth through Christ-magnifying proclamation and protect the truth against Christ-minimizing opposition. So first, as we move into verse 16 of chapter 3, you have Paul say, the church is a pillar in support of the truth. And then in verse 16 he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And so he said, that the church is the pillar in support of the truth, so what is the truth? Dean, if you could advance to the next slide. Yes, perfect. What is the truth? And so Paul then defines the truth by saying, this is what it is. Great is the mystery of godliness. We're supposed to promote the truth through Christ's magnifying proclamation. We need to know what it is, and Paul says it's the mystery of godliness. Now, you may sit there and think, well, that's not very helpful. The truth is a mystery. How are we supposed to protect it if it's a mystery? Well, The word mystery in the Bible doesn't mean what we usually associate the word mystery with. Oftentimes we hear the word mystery and we think that means some kind of puzzle or problem that is unsolved or unsolvable. But that's actually not what the the word means. Uh, the, The way that Paul uses the term mystery in the New Testament, it means something that was previously hidden, but has now been revealed by God and can be known and understood. The way that Paul uses the word mystery, he often is speaking about the content of the gospel. So in Romans chapter 16, the very end of the book, Paul makes this clear where he says, the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past But now is made known. So so the mystery of the gospel was something that prior to the coming of Christ, we we weren't able to guess. We even see this in the book of 1 Peter, where it says that that the prophets inquired diligently about the grace that was to be ours, about Christ and who he would be and, and when he would come and what his sufferings meant. And they didn't know, but they eagerly awaited it. It was a mystery to them. They knew something was coming, but they didn't know what it was. But now, in the coming of Christ, that mystery has been made known. It's made known in the gospel and the preaching of Jesus. And so, when we hear the mystery of godliness here, we're we're simply thinking the gospel. The truth is the gospel. And then Paul goes on and he quotes what seems like it is an ancient hymn or a creed, or some kind of liturgical element from the early church as a way of explaining and expounding just what this truth consists of. So what's the the content of the mystery? Well, ultimately, it's just the gospel of Jesus. And and in a very real sense, the gospel is Jesus. Jesus. So first, he says, he who was revealed in the flesh. This is very poetic type language in Greek. It's very, very short, punchy words. It rhymes as much as Greek can rhyme. Uh, And so it it is certainly something that if it wasn't to him, it was was, uh, originally crafted as something that could be remembered. He who was revealed in the flesh. Well, that's jesus it's a reference to jesus's incarnation that christ is the incarnate son so it starts this mystery of godliness the gospel starts with the person of christ who is jesus he is the incarnate son god the son eternally and fully god with the father and the spirit god the son became man in jesus of nazareth fully god fully human. And in Jesus, the invisible God has made himself visible. He revealed himself in the flesh. It starts with the incarnation. Who is Jesus? And then Paul says, he was vindicated in the spirit, or probably better, he was vindicated by the spirit. So he moves from the Incarnation now to to the Resurrection and the work of Christ. We see that in this, Paul is teaching that Christ is the sufficient Savior. See, the Resurrection, this this happens often, I think, when we talk about the Gospel. The Resurrection is kind of like an afterthought. We are in a, a hurry to get to the cross, and then after the cross, we kind of peter out and forget to tell people that, yes, Jesus is alive. He came back from the dead. But why is that important? We're we're certainly able to say, well, it's important that Jesus died because he died for my sins. He took my punishment. But why does the resurrection matter? The resurrection is a vindication of Christ. It's the proof. It's the vindication that all that Jesus said about himself was true. It's a demonstration that his death as a substitute for sinners was entirely sufficient to pay for sins. As we so often talk about here uh, when we preach the gospel, Jesus said it is finished. There's nothing more that needs to happen. And the resurrection is proof. The resurrection is proof that his death was entirely sufficient to pay for sins, and God raised him to life as a demonstration. So Christ is the incarnate Son, and he's the sufficient Savior, and he's also the risen Lord. The next phrase that Paul says is, he was seen by angels. And this is also probably a reference to the resurrection, but more specifically to the way that Jesus appeared after the resurrection. Uh, It could mean uh, he was seen by the angels who were at the tomb uh, when he was raised from the dead. It could mean, because the word angels in Greek also means messenger and can be used of human messengers, it could mean that what this is referring to is that Christ was seen by his apostles Those who would be the messengers of the gospel. The word seen is actually the the form of that word is almost exclusively used in Paul's letters as a almost like a technical reference to those who saw the Lord Jesus. So, regardless of whether it means by angels as angelic beings or messengers meaning the apostles, the point is that Jesus was seen. His resurrection was followed by appearances. And the bottom line is that Jesus didn't sneak back to heaven. He didn't come out of the tomb and and steal out in the night. He was there for 40 days. He showed himself with many convincing signs and proofs. And he walked and talked and ate with the disciples numerous times. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to up to 500 people at once. one thing for us to say Jesus rose from the dead, it's another thing for us to say he rose from the dead, and people saw him, and then they wrote it down, they said, we saw Jesus alive. Then Paul goes on, he was proclaimed among the nations. And this makes me think that maybe that that previous phrase, seen by angels, is a reference to to the apostles, because the very next thing he says is that Jesus is the the subject of proclamation. The apostles and, and all who follow in their footsteps, including us, were commissioned to proclaim the news of what all of this has just said, that Christ is the incarnate Son, that he has come as the Messiah, that he died as a substitute for our sins and made full and sufficient atonement for them, and that he rose from the dead as God's verification that his work was completely acceptable and finished. And he appeared a demonstration to us that everything that he said is true. And so he was commissioning his apostles that forgiveness of sins and repentance be proclaimed in his name. That the church's commission is to proclaim and preach Christ. If you look in the book of Acts at the early sermons, you see examples of how the apostles preached the gospel. They never quite preached the gospel in the same way. They start in different places. But ultimately the focus of all of their preaching is the person of Jesus. When Peter went to Cornelius in Acts 10, Peter starts preaching the gospel and says, you know that this man, Jesus, you know of Jesus. When he he starts preaching in Acts 2, this is Jesus. In Acts 5, uh, Peter and the apostles are, are said that they... Uh, it said of them that that they were in the temple courts and they would not cease preaching the Lord Jesus. For the apostles, preaching Jesus, preaching about him, his person, his work, that is the content of the truth that they are proclaiming. Then Paul goes on and says that this Jesus who is proclaimed is believed on in the world. Christ is proclaimed in the gospel, and all people everywhere, Paul says in Acts 17, are called to repent of their sins and turn to Christ to be saved. And this is very important. You can believe that these things are true about Jesus and yet not actually believe and entrust yourself to Jesus. Martin Luther once was asked, what was the difference between him and the Pope? If you know anything about Luther, there was a lot of things different between him and the Pope, but but the person challenged him and said, but you both believe the Apostles' Creed. And Luther said, yes, but the difference is, that I believe it's true for me. There is a personal appropriation of what Jesus has done that is necessary for every person. Nobody gets grandfathered in. You don't get automatically stamped with a ticket to heaven when you're born to a Christian family or when you get baptized or anything like that. You have to come to him in faith, believing that he is who he said he is and entrusting yourself to him, not relying on yourself and your works, but relying on him and his works. So I wonder if you've done that. Have you trusted Christ? Christ is God incarnate. He lived a perfect life. He, he died as a substitute for your sins. But he was raised from the dead, which shows that there's nothing else that's necessary for God to forgive you. He appeared and he commissioned the church and all Christians to preach that he is the one who's been appointed to judge the living and the dead and that forgiveness of sins is available in his name if you will cease trusting yourself and start trusting in Jesus. Will you do that this morning? And then the last phrase that Paul quotes here is that this Jesus who is proclaimed and believed is... Taken up in glory, that Christ is the ascended king. As you get to the end of this, and you say, Oh, yes, sure, he was, he was born, he became a, a man, he died and was resurrected, and, and he appeared, and, and then people proclaimed him and they're leaving. You know, well, where's Jesus now? He ascended gloriously into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. Upholding all things by the word of his power. And one day he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And he will be marveled at among those who believe. See, we can get into the weeds on what each of these little phrases means. But the thing I want you to see is this. The mystery of godliness, the truth that the church is to proclaim and protect is this. It's Christ. It's Christ, Christ, nothing but Christ. He is the sum and substance and center of everything we believe. And that's why we say that we are to promote the truth through Christ magnifying proclamation. Proclamation. Regardless of what we're talking about, the point is always going to come back to Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate, crucified, risen, reigning, returning Lord. And when our message lacks or marginalizes Christ, it fails to hold fast to the truth. I recently heard uh, a message at a Christian institution um, that was, it was a fine message. Um, there was lots of biblical principles in it that were things that were true and that I would agree with. Um, but I left feeling empty. And I left feeling empty because this person had not shown me Jesus. And I wanted to say to him, thank you for your your words, your points were good, but next time leave your points at home and point me to Christ. Because that's what I need. I don't need more principles on how to be better. I need a Savior who can change me. That's what I need. It's quite possible for us to be very biblical, biblical, in our thinking, and our acting, and totally miss Jesus. So where is he in your life? Was he the get into heaven card and now you're growing because you're putting into practice the 10 steps to a healthy marriage or 24 steps to a do whatever? Like, that stuff can be good, but if it's divorced from Christ, it means nothing. You don't need advice, you need to be changed by a living savior. So how do we do this? We do it in a number of ways. The the church certainly seeks to do it through a number of of means as an organization, through our preaching. We don't want to only be biblical. We always are going to preach the Bible, but our preaching of the Bible also has to be Christ-centered because Christ is the point of the Bible. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament teaches about him. The Gospels preach exclusively about who this man Jesus is. Everything turns on him. Our kids' ministry, if you go downstairs, they're using a, a curriculum called the Gospel Project that is spectacular. And it is, a, it is actually a very profoundly robust biblical and theological story of the the Bible from start to finish and every lesson, every week, the kids are learning not just what the Bible story says, but how it points them to Jesus. Jeremy does this in our youth ministry. We want want our, our small groups and our studies to do this, to be focusing on Jesus, who Jesus is, how Jesus is changing our lives, how we, as we gather together and speak the truth to one another in love, how we are pressing one another to become more like Jesus. This is one of the reasons we're doing this study, how people change this fall. And regardless of what you you think about it, I want to assure you that the point of that study is about how to orient the entirety of your life Around Jesus and His Word and His work, because it is in doing that that we really can change, and how to help others do the same. Now, how do you promote the truth? Well, certainly we want to through evangelism, through a faithful speaking of the gospel to other people that they might come to repent and believe and and trust in Jesus. But I also want to challenge you in your personal conversations and relationships with other people, with other Christians. What do those relationships look like? What do those conversations look like? How intentionally Christ-centered are they? When you come into fellowship with other people, do you even acknowledge that the thing that draws you together is that you're both in Christ? Now, this is not... Uh, uh, an ad for an over-spiritualization of all your relationships where all you, you say is, oh, so glad we're in Christ together, brother. Let's have this be all we talk about. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is there, is there anything that happens in your relationships with other Christians where, where you guys are intentionally asking one another, like, is Christ precious to you? Are you being daily more assured of your salvation because of the promises of God in Christ? How is he challenging you to grow? Where are places that you need to grow in Christ this What are truths that you need to embrace? Is that what our community is like? Or do we just kind of play it community? Where we get together and because we're sitting in a group, we can say we're in community. But ultimately, the group is more like a bunch of people going like this. Like, hey, it's cool that we're all here. I don't want you in my stuff because... That's my thing. My challenge is for you to go read the New Testament and see what the church does in the Old Testament. Because here's the deal. Nobody wants people in their business. But in the New Testament, everybody is up in everybody's business. Like, that's how the church works. It's if we're doing things with one another. We're praying for one another. We're exhorting one another. We're admonishing one another. We're rebuking one another. We're teaching one another. We're loving one another. Please don't come and try to spill everything to me after the service because I've said that. But we need to have those kind of relationships where that can happen. Those intentionally Christ-centered relationships can be a way that we promote the truth. So quickly then, we're going to move on to chapter 4. We're to promote the truth through Christ-magnifying Proclamation, and then we're to protect the truth against Christ minimizing opposition. Now, we shouldn't be surprised about the reality of opposition. That opposition is going to come if we make uh, if we make exclusive truth claims. If we say that the church has a unique role in promoting and proclaiming objective truth, then we should not be surprised that people aren't going to like that. And we shouldn't be surprised that some people will be deceived and fall away from it. So chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So, the coming of opposition is inevitable. And the cause of opposition is spiritual. See, in verse two, that the thing that leads people to fall away, to oppose the faith, the truth is that they are paying attention or following deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, to the same city. He reminds them this is a spiritual war and we have a spiritual enemy. And these deceitful spirits that people are following after fallen angels, the agents of our adversary. The demonic doctrine that they promote is a, a teaching that originates from these deceitful spirits and directly undermines the truth. Christ. So there is a spiritual enemy behind this, but this kind of deception isn't normally happening through the kind of Supernatural experience that you would expect to see in a movie about exorcisms or something like that. No, its culprits are typically visible. People who are being used by the enemy for his purposes. You see that it says that people are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. These false teachers have been branded by Satan. They're his property. And they go around deceiving the church. They're the visible instruments of the opposition. They're hypocrites and liars. So they may appear to be no big deal. Paul elsewhere describes these people as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, or claiming to know God, but denying Him by their works. At first, they may seem genuine, but on closer inspection, they're actually shown to be counterfeits and imposters. And the result of them leading people astray is this, first, people will... Follow legalistic rules. See, these these false teachers we see in verse 3 were men who were forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods. This is just a a form of legalism that that crops up a number of places in the New Testament. Uh, It's possible that this was a form of what's called Gnosticism, I'm not going to quiz you on how to spell that. Uh, Gnosticism was was an early heresy. It may not have been around at quite this time, so it could have been a very early, kind of incipient form of it. And basically, it was people who thought they had this special spiritual knowledge, and part of that special spiritual knowledge was that anything physical, anything that was made matter, was inherently evil, and that the goal of spiritual life is to escape from matter which is evil and to have this pure spiritual existence and so they would teach that things like food marriage sex things like that created things that involved matter that they were inherently evil and should be avoided and it may be that that this Gnosticism was mixed with Judaism of some kind, and so you have maybe reference to some of the ancient food laws that the Jews had in the Old Testament. But ultimately, it's just legalism. See, legalism is making something a requirement for yourself or for another person that's not biblical, and then thinking that it earns you favor with God. Now, most of us are probably... Uh, not formal legalists. We're probably not signing up uh, to the legalist statement of faith. We of course say, oh no, we are saved not by works, we're saved by Jesus, absolutely. But I bet many of us are functional legalists. Functionally in our day-to-day life, we operate in our relationship with God as if our standing before him is based on something we do or don't do. And the reason that people slip into this legalistic quagmire is because fundamentally they have forgotten the truth. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul says that these these people forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. He says about that, "But, but these are things that God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And so as people are led away from the truth, they begin to submit themselves to these rules because they've forgotten the truth of Jesus. This is why I call this type of opposition Christ-minimizing. You see, it's not that these false teachers were, were just saying, you don't need Jesus, Jesus is nothing. It was almost worse than that. Because it had, it had just enough of a hint of truth to make people in the church believe it. A- at its root, legalism is a functional denial of the truth about Jesus, and it preaches to you a Jesus plus gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean a gospel that says in order to be saved, sanctified, to really be pleasing to God, whatever, you need Jesus plus something. Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus plus something. Great, you got Jesus? Great. So in the book of Galatians, it was circumcision. Well, great that you, know, you have Jesus, but you need Jesus plus circumcision. Otherwise, you're not going to heaven. And uh, go read Galatians and you see what Paul says about that. This kind of legalism in Ephesus was showing up in the form of people saying, no, you need Jesus. Yeah, that's great. You have him, but you need Jesus plus not eating these foods. You need Jesus plus not, not getting married. That's what the really holy people do. We have the same thing that happens today, maybe not with those particular situations, but people functionally in the way that they talk and interact with you, and maybe it's you, will say things like, no, you. well, yeah, yeah, in order to be really holy, you need Jesus plus not drinking alcohol or you need Jesus plus specific spiritual disciplines, or you need Jesus plus the sacraments, or you need Jesus plus plus an experience or speaking in tongues, or you need Jesus and not being a Democrat, and all of this garbage. But a gospel of Jesus plus is no gospel at all. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. And so... This opposition minimizes Christ and it draws people into this legalistic mindset because they've forgotten that in Christ they have everything necessary and sufficient for their salvation and standing with God from the moment they're saved into eternity. So, what's our response? How does the church then protect the truth of Jesus? How can we detect this kind of deceitful Christ minimizing opposition? I want to suggest that one of the ways that we can do it is the same way that people uh, find counterfeit currency. If you talk to somebody uh, who is is involved in anti-counterfeiting operations, they'll tell you, well, the way we learn how to identify a counterfeit bill is by studying an authentic one, a genuine one, and becoming so familiar with it that the minute we see one that's counterfeit, we know, we can tell. So protecting the truth, protecting ourselves and our church from this kind of Christ minimization and Christ marginalization starts with us becoming so familiar with Christ and who he is and what he's done and his word and his work that when a a teaching comes along that's not in line with it, you can smell the sulfur. And then you use this litmus test. You read a book, you hear a pastor, you hear an author or a teacher or, or somebody on the radio or somebody on the TV. Fundamentally ask yourself, what are they saying about Jesus? Are they saying anything about him at all? And if they're not, that's where you can cut and run. But if they are saying something about Jesus... What are they saying? Is Jesus a good moral example? A good teacher? A life coach? A homeboy? Is Jesus a created being? Is Jesus less than God? Is he a genie that grants all your wishes and would never say anything contrary to your opinion? Does he want to make you healthy, wealthy, wise, rich? Or is he God incarnate, sufficient Savior, risen Lord, the subject of our proclamation, the object of our faith, and the glorious ascended King and Judge? That's how you determine whether a teacher or an author or a spiritual leader or a book or a video or anything like that. You can tell the hypocritical spirit's following the demonic doctrines, you ask, who do they say that Jesus is? So our response to this kind of legalism is ultimately to refocus and magnify Christ in our lives and what we do and what we say. We become eager students of our savior. We study and drink deeply of Christ and the privileges of the gospel. We don't submit to things that aren't focused on Christ. We don't follow things that minimize or marginalize him. We want to keep him at the center of everything we do. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. One of the ways we can do that is through confessing our faith together. Publicly declaring with one voice what we believe to be true about Christ. And this morning, we're going to read together uh, a, a confessional statement. It's called the Ligonier Statement on Christology as a sign of our shared belief and as a means of orienting our hearts toward what's true about Christ. So Please stand, and we will read this together. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day. He ascended to heaven and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. You pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do worship you and proclaim you to be God. We thank you, Lord, that you took on flesh to ransom us, that you have given a totally sufficient substitution for us, that you rose from the dead to grant us new life, that by your ascension you stand before your Father interceding for us, upholding everything by your powerful word. And we thank you, Lord, that you will come again and that we who believe will marvel at you And so, Lord, as we wait for you, please satisfy us with your love and the all-sufficiency of Christ. Make him more beautiful, more precious, and more satisfying to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.